Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. A call to confession today comes from Proverbs chapter 27, verse 21. The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and a man is tested by his praise. This proverb gives a criterion by which we may try ourselves. Silver and gold are tried by putting them in the furnace in the refining pot. So is a man tried by praising him. Let him be extolled and preferred, and then he will show himself what he truly is. There are really two ways which we can respond to the praise of others. First, from the applause that is given man, if a man is made proud and conceited and scornful, if he takes the glory to himself, which should be transmitted to God, if the more he is praised, the more careless he is about what he says and does, then it will appear that he is a vain, foolish man, a man who, though he is praised, has nothing in him that is truly praiseworthy. On the contrary, if a man is made by his praise to be more thankful to God, more respectful of his friends, more watchful against every blemish of his reputation, more diligent to improve himself and do the good and to do good to others, then by such responses it will appear that he is a wise and a good man. This proverb simply reminds us of our own need to examine ourselves and to confess our sins which God reveals to us. Please kneel where you are if you're willing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, and I pray that your word would settle within us today, but that we would not be settled, that we would be moved by your word. Lord, I pray that you would speak to each and every one of us in our hearts what it is that we need to hear today, Lord, to move us so that we would be transformed, not just informed. And Lord, I pray that if I say anything amiss, that it would come to nothing, but that if I miss something, your Holy Spirit would bring it up Nevertheless, we pray a blessing on your word now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So it was an interesting time, right, about the time of Jesus and all the things that are going on with, the, uh, with all the different political parties and social political sorts of situations going on there. And we are thrust right in the midst of that right here in this passage in Matthew. It's, it's a familiar pastor, a passage to most, however... There's some interesting things I'd like to point out today that I felt the Holy Spirit was really telling me that I needed to bring to you today. Why don't I read through the passage first from Matthew 22, verses 15 through 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his talk. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? 
They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. You know, one of the things that's great about Matthew is he often emphasizes in his gospel there's really only two ways that people react to Jesus during his ministry. Those two ways are homage or hostility. Starting all the way back with the Magi and Herod at the beginning of Matthew, we see hostility and we see homage as well. When confronted with the living God and who Jesus really is, it's difficult to be indifferent. Jesus is anything but ho-hum. And in this passage, we see the hostility, albeit masquerading as homage. Now, it would be an incredible understatement to say that Jesus was merely a thorn in their flesh. He was much more than that at this point in time to the Jewish political and uh, religious leaders. They had tried repeatedly to have him discredited or rebuffed, several which we see recorded in the Gospels. But every time, they're meted with failure at every turn. But they shrewdly take a page from Jesus' playbook himself and try to turn the tables on him. He was speaking to the question of the Pharisees back in Matthew 21, and we see the results where he turns the tables on them, gives them a question that they don't want to answer. So they go and they say, ah, let's give him a question that he can't answer publicly in front. So they take this, and so it's kind of a fun narrative if you go through that, jump back to Matthew 21, then follow through to 22, and we see the results. So it's a fun narrative for followers of Jesus to walk through this. But at the same time, we can't miss that in Jesus' succinct response, he not only outwits his opponents, but he also gives one of the most mature pronouncements on civil power as well. But he also lays out the basis of our relationship with God. So we're going to do a couple things today. We're going to see what's really going on here. We're going to walk through the story in the context a little bit. And then we'll see what is really more than just a clever evasion of a topic. It's really a, a wonderful pronouncement underneath the text there. And we'll also connect what this means and what, how it's important to us as believers today and what I think God has put on my heart for today for application. So let's set up the context of the conflict. The Pharisees and the Herodians are no friends to each other. They're tackling a particularly heated topic of their day and their, uh, and their question whether or not this tax should be uh, paid by God-fearing Jews. Rebellion was the rule today. So that, make, yeah, that makes sense. The Herodians are saying, well, yeah, we need to pay a lot of taxes. And the Pharisees are saying, no, 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 we shouldn't be paying taxes to something that's not the Jewish state. So rebellion was the rule of the day, and that was something that the Romans were really, that uh, was kind of a favorite pastime of them, squelching rebellions in any way they had to. They were afraid of that more than anything in the Roman rule. So the Pharisees were the legalistic elite, while the Herodians were the pro-Roman uh, leaders. Normally, they would go toe-to-toe, head-to-head with each other. They did not like each other. But yet, they had a bigger common enemy at that time, a common problem. That is Jesus. So they get together, and they have to figure out how to deal with this problem. And this passage tells us that they get together and collude to come up with a solution to this. And we see in in verse 16, And they sent their disciples to, to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, and teach the way of God truthfully, And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Now, if you believe that coming out of their mouth, then you need to reread it, because you start to hear almost the the insincerity dripping off their tongues as they say that. They're just trying to butter him up and say, of course, you are good and true. 
Now, interestingly enough, I'm not sure how they exactly thought this was going to fool Jesus, but maybe they were trying to fool the crowd or something. I don't know. But the irony, even though they don't know it, is what they said of Jesus is actually truth. It's quite correct. He is true, and he does teach the way of God truthfully, whether they meant it or not. And if they really believed the deceptive words that were coming out of their own mouth, they would know the truth and not be trying to trap him, but trying to learn from him. Now, the wording that we find here, which it says swayed by appearances, the original phrase is more literally the face of men. Here they are effectively saying that Jesus does not judge a book by its cover. They're saying, okay, we know that you don't judge a book by its cover, but rather see, for, see things for what they really are. There's also a strange irony that they are heaping false flattery on him when their hearts are the deceitful ones. So what's the question? Let's address the question here. It's phrased a trap. Much like Jesus' question we talked about back in chapter 21, except Jesus traps them in their own words there. In verse 15, the word trap him, which is an interesting Greek word, uh, this is the only place that this word shows up in the New Testament. But the picture that it's brought here is a bird caught in a snare or a net. It's something that's a, a verbal trap. They're going to try and get him so he has no way out. He's painted into a corner. That's what they're going to try and do, verbally trap him this way. Why are they doing this and to what effect? We see their intentions more clearly when we see the, the parallel Lucan account, which talks about Luke 20, 20. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Their plan is that they don't want to get rid of Jesus publicly. They want the Romans to get rid of Jesus. So what they're going to do is try and trap him in such a way that either the public doesn't like him for what Jesus says or that they can hand him over to to the Romans saying, here, look at what you have here. You should get rid rid of Jesus because he says you shouldn't pay taxes. So they're trying to trap him, and their question of of insincerity, or there is no question of the insincerity. It's a brilliant plan they put together. They've spent a lot of time. These are very smart people. They're playing off the tensions of the day. Now, they really don't want, as I said, an answer so much as they just want fodder for prosecuting Jesus. They want incriminating evidence, kind of a smoking gun, so to speak. And the sad part is the evidence that they find later they have to fabricate anyways against Jesus. So this is phrased as a simple yes or no. This question is a yes or no answer. They're not asking for a discourse on it. It's a trick question, a double-edged sword meant to draw blood either way it goes. However, being set up as a, let's talk about a yes or no question. Yes, if Jesus says yes, you should pay taxes. Now Jesus is going to lose many of his followers. The Pharisees are going to take that one, run with it, and say, see, Jesus is just another Herodian, and you don't need to follow him, and he would lose a lot of his followers and supporters, at least what they're thinking. Now, if he says, no, you shouldn't pay his taxes, that's even better. Because if he says, no, we can hand him right over to the Roman authorities, and they'll take care of him, and he's out of the picture. Which we know later, that's exactly what they do, not on this subject, but they, try, they have Rome, they have Pontius Pilate take him out. So notice there really are two questions here, though. Is it or, or not? Is it or not? They're essentially saying, pick your poison, Jesus. Which is it? You can't have your cake and eat it, too. So that's the question. So let's talk a little bit about this coin. Well, they say there's two sides to every coin. Now, this is not the actual coin, just in case you were wondering. This is not the actual coin they were looking at. This is not a denarius. This is a quarter, but it's what I had on me. So they're looking at this, this coin, and what's interesting about the coin is it has two sides. 
Now, it's important to know because they knew what, when they had the, what coin they were talking about, they knew what was on both sides of this coin, so it's important for us to know as well. The tax, excuse me, the coin mentioned here is a, uh, for this tax is a silver denarius under the tribute tax to Rome. It's, it's called nomismo, or illegal tender. This is what's used to pay the tax. Now, patriotic Jews refused to even use the coin because, or why was that? Because one thing we know about from archaeology is this coin had two interesting sides to it. One of them had an image, and the image, and, and the other side, excuse me, had an image and an inscription. The image is the image of Tiberius Caesar, and images, by the way, were forbidden by the second commandment. You couldn't have that there, especially in the, in the temple. But the image is an image of Tiberius Caesar's, which are, and in the temple no less. The Latin inscription, by the way, underneath it said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So there was a claim to deity as well on this coin. And on the other side of the coin is the image of Pax, who is the Roman goddess of peace, with the inscription that says, High Priest. So you can see why devout Jews didn't even want to use this coin, because it was a blasphemous coin with a blasphemous inscription. No wonder they didn't want to use this. And here in the temple, no less. Now, an interesting thing that when Jesus, and it's kind of fun, you go in there, when Jesus asks them for a coin, why does he ask them for a coin? Because he doesn't have one. But guess what? They're able to produce one right away. So they've got one there. So they're even in their own trap that are all of a sudden, I get, I get this feeling that they're, they, they kind of sheepishly pull out that coin because they know what they're setting up here. It's kind of like if you ask Jesus, like, is it okay to shoot guns? And then he says, well, what kind of gun you mean? And somebody produces an AK-47 or something from under their coat. It's a, there's a disingenuousness there that we see. So they give him this tough question. When you see this coin, what is Jesus' response to this question? Now, I imagine that they were kind of mumbling when they said that, well, it's Caesar's inscription that's on there. Uh, because of all the idolatrous things we talked about. But Jesus is really pressing the point. He means more than just trying to get them. He's trying to prove a point. What a point is it? If, if He says, if it's Caesar's image on there, then giving it back to Caesar is nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with returning it to Caesar, for it belongs to him. The word here actually should be probably better transfer, uh, translated as render or give back. Um, if, if some of you have NIV, although they fixed it in the ne- new version of NIV, but NIV misses it here and it kind of says give. It's a giving back. It's a returning to. In other words, it belongs to Caesar, so give it back to Caesar. Jesus basically says give it back. And although this is not a terribly paradoxical statement, but this is more of a profound, simple one. The one to whom it belongs should be able to receive it back. This is, I keep saying this over and over because this is important, what he's going to make the point here. The sense is the return that something's borrowed or that payment of something to whom it is due. This seems all the more likely given the context of Matthew 21, 41 parable where the vineyard talks about giving back. You can look that one up later. But a, kind of an illustration of this might be a cattle, cattle branding. Cattle are branded. They're branded with their owner. And so if the cattle, cattle wanders off the ranch, it can be returned back to its owner. It's branded with that. So Jesus' answer is actually quite deep when you start to realize what is the context that Jesus is talking about. The coin has Caesar's image, so give it back to him. But what does he say there at the beginning? He says, or at the end of that passage, 
When they say Caesar, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God what the things that are God's. Well, we're talking about a coin. So what, what is he talking about of giving back to God? Well, jump back a little bit. He's talking about, it has the image of Tiberius Caesar on there. So it's fine to give that back to him. But what has the image of God? Genesis 1, 26, 27 tells us, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, after our own likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish in the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In, his own, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the Jewish leaders, they made it a mutually uh, exclusive question. So it's either this or that. And Jesus says, you got it wrong. That's not what's going on. He's not explaining all that, but in the text you can start to say, look, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, to God what is God. There's more going on than just a this or that. This is why it's, he's trying to say these are essentially not incompatible concepts. There's a sense of a, that you have to have a respect for the state, that not a, a divine sort of a sense, but that there's a respect for who the state is and that God has put the state in place. But we also realize that there's a limitation of the state, that human beings bear God's image and belong to God alone, that God is the boundary of the state. So there's an interesting interplay there. So in the end, Jesus never never really totally identifies with anybody. He doesn't identify with the zealots, who are the hyper-revolutionaries who basically give no taxes. They refuse to give anything to Rome. Nor does he totally identify with the Herodians, which says that they, the, the state is given almost divine authority. And after Jesus speaks, what happens there? They are amazed. They are amazed at him. Luke actually, over in the Lucan account, he says they're left speechless. They have nothing left to say, which I think is an amazing thing to be able to, who, people who derive their uh, entire living off of their words. They're amazed, I think, perhaps at the depth of the answer, but perhaps they're more amazed that Jesus somehow wormed his way out of this trap that they set. This was a brilliant plan they had for him. There was no way out of it. They knew it ahead of time, and yet somehow he turned this into making a statement about it was incredibly profound, everybody could accept, and made them look foolish at the same time. They were really amazed at that. I mean, they're looking at him, and what do they say? What do they see? They see an illegitimate carpenter, right? Isn't that what they see? They're like, how can he pull this one off? On the contrary, we know that he is the word. And as I've liked to said before, if you're playing word games with the word of God, you'll be left speechless. You can't play word games with the word of God. Now going back to Jesus' answer, the answer is as simple as it is deep. Jesus has a positive appreciation for the role of the state as given by God. God has put governments in place. But he has even more appreciation for it. It's God's alone that the state does not have dominion over. So it's an interesting and fun account to go through. But what exactly does this mean for us? You know, how does this, I guess, so what? So what about this account? How does that speak to us today? Well, I think one of the takeaways we can definitely say is that we must give back to God what is due to him. Because we are his image, we are due to God. Just like the image on the coin. What was given to us by God? Our life, our all, and our salvation. So what, what must we give back? Our life, our all, and the glory that God alone is due. 
So you might say, okay, Pastor, I understand that we are due to God, but what exactly does that mean in a more concrete and less abstract sort of sense? What does that mean for us this very day? How can I take this and put it into play? What are you withholding from God? What is it that you personally are withholding from God? If you're anything like me, you have plenty to choose from. It's not just one thing. But I'd like you to really kind of search for that single one thing that God today is saying, you know, you've been holding that back from me, that part of you, that, that part of your life. You've been holding that away from me, separate, and not allowing me to be able to bless you. So what we really need to do is find that one single thing that God wants us to focus on first. We can get to the other things later. Don't be daunted by the task. Focus on one thing. Allow us to go forward. And when I say, I want to say focus or select that one thing, I don't just mean that you want to kind of put it on a to-do list or something. You need to be able to wrestle with this. It's not something that you want to do like at the stoplight or in between commercials or something like that. Take some time. Go through God's word and try and understand. If you need to pop over the concordance on whatever it is, go to where it is you think that God wants to be able to speak to you and wrestle in prayer, in writing, in reading of his word. However it is, just listening to God, perhaps, until we find an answer in prayer. So each one of us needs to wrestle with the individual team thing, that, and that will be different for each person. Each person, we might have some of the same sorts of things, but each one of us has an individual life, and we are unique. We have to find what it is that God wants us to do. We need to, uh, as the image of God, as the image of God, we must work at becoming more like the Creator. The image must look more like its Creator. We need to become more Christ-like. And as John the Baptist noted, we must increase, or excuse me, he must increase, we must decrease for that to happen. And probably the best answer to give is, uh, of what that means, to truly give ourselves back to God, is to render unto God what is God's. However, the process of sanctification and becoming more and more like Christ is probably the best as a subject for another whole discussion in another text. But I did say that God was leading me to challenge you today, to challenge us with something specific from this passage. So why don't I start with a suggestion? Let's start with giving ourselves back to Jesus in our relationship to Jesus. Just as the same very thing at the end of this verse, verses 37, uh, excuse me, the same, same chapter of Matthew, the Lord gives us the greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind. So I suggest today that we start giving back ourselves in our relationship to Jesus because this is the foundation of so many other things. If we start turning over those ourselves to Jesus, all the other things will follow suit. We need to know him deeply, not just know of him. There are lots of people who know of Jesus and think he's a good guy. But we need to know Jesus and know that he is our Lord and our Savior. And that way, our time, our talents, our, our trust, our service will all be in the Lord and follow suit. You see that so often we forget the God of the universe, Jesus, to who, and this is important. We forget that he longs to have a relationship with us. He longs for us. As it says in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. he longs to gather us as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Yet time after time, don't we, we hold back. We don't give in to that. And I think of an illustration of a little boy who's out there in the outfield and he's looking for his father. He's longing to have his father show up. And inning after inning, he's looking for his father. And his tears are streaming down his eyes. He's looking for his father, and his father never shows up. And yet in that illustration, we're more like the father, and God is more like the little boy. 
And I don't mean that in a, a way that God is somehow less, but that somehow God, that longing that God has, it's almost inexplicable how the God of the universe would long to have a relationship with us. He wants to have a deeper relationship, and he longs to have that. And that's where we need to start showing up and building that d- deeper relationship with him. So where do you start? First of all, if you've never given over your heart to him, start there. Because otherwise, it's all for naught. You're going to try and do it under your own strength, and it's not going to work. Perhaps you've already accepted Jesus, as many here have, into your heart. And you struggle where to go to next. Well, I'd say give God a foothold in your life. It may be five minutes in the morning to do that thing that you know God wants you to focus on. If you aren't having a time, devoted time in prayer or a quiet time, you need to make that a focus in your lives. We are the image of God, and all that we have is due to Him. Therefore, we must render ourselves by surrendering ourselves in greater relationship with Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for this wonderful example of what it means to give back what is due. In this example of the coin that that they said they wanted to trap him and give back what is due to Caesar, but yet we see that you were really saying that we need to give back to God what is God's, and that is us. That's us in our soul. It's our families and our children. Lord, I pray that today we would be able to walk away and say, Lord, I need to give something back to you that I have been holding back from you. It is due to you, for you are my Lord and my Master. I pray that we would walk away changed today. In Jesus' name we pray. by bewilderment concerning whether or not there's any point to life. But suppose they were here with us today. Suppose one of them asked us, what is the point of life? The answer to that question, which you could say is the greatest of all questions, is right here in front of us. Here the bread of life and the wine of forgiveness are set on the table in front of us as the entire point of our lives. This table is all about communion with God. And that is why God created us to have communion with him. If he created us to have communion with him, then having communion with him is the point of life. This table set before us weekly is our sacramental reminder that Jesus gave himself in order to restore us to that rightful place in communion with God. A life separated from God, estranged from him, is a life that has no purpose, no point. It is to be utterly lost. And that is where all of us once were before the saving faith that God gave to us. So often our sin or the busyness of life distract us from the reality that we are meant to have communion with our beloved creator and that his son paid a tremendous price for us to obtain it. But that is why he prepared this table to remind us to seal in our heart, our soul, and our mind that we are his people and he is our God. We are in him and he is in us. So come to the Lord's table. Come to what he desires for us.
communion with him. Christ's body, broken for us. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.